Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Break free from the forces holding you back. Get the life you deserve. Eliminate stress, reduce anxiety, decrease depression, and start living your full potential. Thousands have used Dr. Fujian Zane's Awareness Integration Theory, an evidence-based behavioral health breakthrough with incredible life-changing results. Getting rid of past trauma, having fulfilling relationships, increasing earnings, and living their best life. Now, the Fujian app is available to everyone. The app is Dr. Fujian Zane's Awareness Integration Theory in the palm of your hand. Download the Fujian app today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice podcast, a heartfelt chat with my guests and you beautiful listeners and viewers. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane. I'm a psychotherapist and author and the originator of the Awareness Integration Theory. It's so great to be with all of you today. I'm excited that today I get to speak with Dr. Stephen Rowling. He is a psychotherapist practicing in brain, I'm sorry, Bainbridge Island. He's brainy, so Bainbridge Island, Washington, a gorgeous place. His professional past includes serving as an elementary school teacher and a principal and a school district superintendent in Washington and California. He's been a college professor at three universities, teaching courses in educational administration and organizational theory. He holds a PhD in administration and policy analysis from Stanford University. Today, we talk about his latest book, The Lost Coin, a memoir of adoption and destiny. Um, we had an amazing conversation. This is about his own life. And obviously, because he's a psychotherapist, he's looked upon both angle where his own journey and his own experience, he shares that with us. And then uh, all of his research and work as a psychotherapist and uh, as a university professor with people who have gone through adoption. And uh, he shares the delicate, delicate um, nuances and emotional ups and downs of um, what happens as you grow up being an adoptee and going through and sometimes finding your parents and what your imagination is and all of it. I really, really enjoyed our conversation and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I do. Subscribe to this podcast and my YouTube channel. I'd love to be able to hear from you. Go to my website, fujanzang.com. Go to any of the social medias, Dr. Fujan Singh. Share with me your thoughts and um, you know topics you want to hear and the questions that you have. I'd love to hear from all of you. So without further ado, is Dr. Stephen Rowling. Eliminate stress, reduce anxiety, and decrease depression. Dr. Fujian Zane's Awareness Integration Theory has helped thousands like you get incredible life-changing results. The Fujian app gives you her evidence-based treatment in the palm of your hand. Download today. Dr. Stephen yeah. Rowley, it is so nice to have you with us. Um, thank you for joining us from Washington. I, I'm de delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, your latest book, The Lost Coin, a memoir of adoption and destiny. Um, love to be able to talk about that. I personally have um, worked with um, an agency, which was um, Bienvenidos, which we had uh, foster parents and then we had adoptee parents. And sometimes it was different where people were 
um, kind of never saw um, or really experienced their um, adopt uh, their biological parent, well, obviously with the mother's womb, but then after that was immediately, you know, the infant was adopted. Um, I had the experience of sometimes the parents were um, drug addicts. The mother was a drug addict. So right in the hospital, you know, the child was um, taken and put into adoption. And we had also other ways where a, a child was in the foster care system. And then after that, after they connected with the adoptee parents, uh, then they stayed and, you know, um, they continued their life. Sometimes they knew their biological parents, sometimes they didn't at all. And um, for almost five, six years that I had, you know, worked with uh, both the children who were adoptees and the, and the parents who were, I've had a wealth of experience of hearing from them. So I really was interested to have a conversation with you. Sure obviously having your own experience and because you've done so much research on this also to share with us um, a little bit about you and the path on the journey that you've gone through. Well, of course, it took a whole book to say that. So I'll try to make the condensed version for you. Um, so I, when I was born in the Willows Maternity Sanitarium in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, uh, in 1949, which was Kansas City and particularly the adoption agency, the Willows was considered the the hub of the adoption world uh, through the 20s and 30s and 40s, even into the 50s. So this is because of its geolocation, the center of the country, lots of railroad stations, railroad lines go through there. So it was not uncommon for unwed mothers to bring their, bring themselves to this or have their parents take them often or possibly a boyfriend to, uh, to spend the first few months before they gave birth. And so that was where I was, but only for 10 days. After the 10th day, I was somehow transported to Ottumwa, Iowa, which is probably about four or five hours by car today. And uh, there I was uh, for four months in a, in a boarding home of, of four uh, prospective uh, adopt, uh, children to be adopted. Uh, theoretically, I was there for observation. It's still not clear to me why I was there for that, that long, but it raises the issue of, from a developmental perspective. Uh, for what happened during those four months. I mean, I wasn't tortured, I wasn't beaten, I was taken care of, but you that the breaking of that bond with the mother, and it was not until six months that I was adopted by my parents. I, I was among many who were so fortunate to have the parents that I did. Uh, my dad was a surgeon, my mom was a nurse. I was the oldest, the, the oldest uh, child and only child at that time. So I grew up in a loving household. And so you kind of think, well, what's the big deal? I mean, and so people construe the book is a bit of a condemnation for uh, adoption. I'd say, in my case, not at all. However, uh, and part of the theme of the book, and I'll stop with this, uh, there is that something about that separation. There is something about the traumatic imprint of that separation and a sense of longing that I think, at least in my case, and I'm making, the, I guess, the argument that I think is true for many of adoptees uh, that who feel for a lifetime that separation of mother and child regardless of whether we end up a good home or a bad home, uh, uh, consequently. And that's, that takes, as a psychotherapist where I live here in Bainbridge Island, it takes that kind of background to understand the nature of, of psychic wounds, of deep emotional wounds, of developmental disruption, and how we carry that. A lot of people, I would argue, carry that unconsciously. But that, that wound, that primal, um, that primal wound, uh, I think is something that makes us much more in common 
than would meet the, the, the eye. As you already said out of your own experience, every one of those that you've mentioned, uh, cases, uh, uh, foster children and whatnot, uh, those stories are all different. There's, you can't meet somebody who's been adopted and not have a different story. And they can go from tragic to joyful and everything in between. But uh, for those, but I think my uh, case, I think through the book indirectly is that uh, that is our common bond. When I meet other adoptees, there's something I know about them, you know, internally what they're carrying around. And this was the case for our own son. We adopted our son at age four. And as wonderful as a child as he was and young man that he is today, I could still see that. You still knew about his, the tragedy of his early life and how I think, you know, uh, without trying to stop <laughs> speaking for him, I guess, but, you know, you carry that and I can still see and feel that in him. So that is, I think, is something that's not talked about. Uh, it doesn't come up in research. I decided not to write a research book. I could have, but that was not the point. But to use opening my life to be able to see how ways in which not only my adoption, but other issues in my life about the, in terms of what my identity was or is, uh, influenced by more than adoption, all kinds of issues of fate and synchronicity and, and just the sure luck of the draw and what happened in life. It, it, it gives us, I think, a different perspective on how any of us construe or attribute how, who we are. That was the question of my book, Who Am I? And that comes up as a therapist uh, in, with clients. It's sort of there implicitly. And the, I'll, I'm sure they'll get to this. I'll talk later about how the book ends with a kind of, I'll call it a resolution to, that, to the mystery of identity. And without the adoption, I don't think I would have been on such a long, uh, a long quest to answer that either for me personally, or maybe one might say existentially, how any of us attribute who we are beyond our titles and beyond our marital status, beyond our, whether we have children or not. Well, one of the things that I noticed is that the, um, the, a level of um, anxiety uh, is there um, with most adoptees of, of just experiencing a lot of anxiety of um, connection and not connection, attachment and non-attachment. Mm -hmm. so something that was really interesting as I uh, did many of the uh, conversation was the, the ones that did not know that they were adoptees. Um, after, for some reason, they found out because the parents told them when they were a little bit older, or there was a medical condition that they had to reveal this conversation about. Um, all of those suddenly kind of shattered the person's world suddenly of the stability that they had. Uh, yeah. We had after knowing, um, you know, it, it, it really changed the revolution, created a revolution within their identity system. Um, right. Yeah, because I think it was different when you saw that a person knew that they were in the system or they were, you know, because they had a tragic happen to their parents or something happened and they knew that they were going to another family and there was the trauma that was passing through. There were, you know, they were going through the trauma and they were adjusting to a new family. Very different dynamic with the, with the uh, children who were adopted very early. They had no clue and found out later about that. I even had one woman who went to another country um, and adopted to a sister and a brother from a family in a village 
um, she could not have children and she did not want her child or anyone around her in the United States to know that they were, she adopted them. So she planned all of these things to go and have uh, a surrogate mother pretty much to have, um, and it wasn't necessarily surrogate, it was adopted because the both parents were, um, this wasn't their parent, it was another couple who had the children and then two years later they went and got the sibling from the same group and came back and i could see still the anxiety of the parents for this concept of not knowing and then finally i think they were uh late teens where because of a medical condition they had to reveal the conversation again and it was it's a shock and the whole search about now who is my parents and then one of the questions that keeps showing up um, was why was I not wanted or why was I given away? And I think that becomes such an inquiry um, for every person that I've met. Can you share a little bit of your journey and the journey of your research of people when they get this? Well, yeah, you've hit on about 10 different issues, right? <laughs> and what you just said, let me just, this more, the last point. You know, abandonment is is more than a uh, than a concept or something we can say. Well, somebody left. I've had another. I've had clients who uh, one young woman who was left on a uh, in a basket in um, in Mongolia at a train station. You talk about abandonment. Now she she ended up with great parents. She's a pre med student at Dartmouth today and so forth. So, but abandonment is something I think Winnicott identified. I would attach to as what he calls a primitive agony. It's something almost deeper than what we call emotion. It's some deeper primitive kind of response. And I think a sense of being abandoned uh, and other words that attach to that is something that somehow through the power of psyche and through penetrating down into the unconscious, we can begin to identify. Uh, but it's something we all technically, I think theoretically we all sort of have within us, but it takes extraordinary circumstances to really be able to tap into that. And when we do, that can you know, create an enormous amount of trauma I did want to say that uh, what you were mentioning too, I, you could write a book about, I'd just call it the big surprise. When somebody found out that who they thought was their mother was actually their sister and vice versa. Uh, some people, I, there was a guy on a, another, last spring I was on a podcast who shared his story of being at a, his high school reunion and finding out when somebody came across an old classmate and said, you know, I've always wanted to know, like, what was it like to be adopted? He had no clue. And so those are, those are big shocks. Um, and sometimes those secrets are held for uh, reasons that uh, maybe need to be. Uh, I have a client who's, I'm quite sure, whose uh, who's parentage runs right back, that he discovered much later, back into drug cartels and, uh, you know, I'll call them drug lords, but, uh, heads of cartels in South America. That was a shock. But a shock that meets you have to think twice, do I really want to go find find uh, the birth parent? It may not be such a good idea. But I want to say also the flip side of the, of the um, as you talk about the anxiety, sometimes finding out about your parentage, even though it comes as a surprise, is also a reassurance. For example, in uh, Danny Shapiro's book, she was a writer anyway and wrote a book about her discovery that her actual father was not, her father was not the father that she thought, it was, but it turned out to be a sperm donor. And the irony was that her, she grew up Jewish, uh, uh, an Orthodox Jew, but 
the rest of the family had dark hair and, and outside generalizable Jewish uh, physical traits. She was uh, blonde, blue eyed, and everyone she knew said, well, you're not Jewish. You can't be. You know, you don't, you're don't. Swedish or something. And she didn't accept it. So she was a very devout Orthodox Jew until her mother, uh, after her father's death, who she was very close to, uh, sort of spilled the beans and said, well, uh, you know, actually, we're not sure it really was your father was your parent. It was a sperm donor. And it took her and her husband only about 36 hours to actually find out who her birth father was. But for her, it was a more of a reassurance. Somehow this other unsettledness, this sort of anxiety, this sort of insecurity around in her life, it was just sort of a, a core underlying uh, uh, an emotional resonance in her life that was something unsettled. And only until she found out who her birth father was actually that found him, I think here in the Northwest, who was an accomplished and well-known physician who looked like her, they had the same speech mannerisms, they physically looked a lot alike. And then it was like, oh, this explains it. Some, and now she did she, she and her husband became very close with her uh, birth father and her Swindor birth father and his wife, never replacing her parents, but still there was this reassurance like, oh, there is something else here that I've discovered as part of the big surprise. It actually was quite a, not only a revelation, but I think a relief. Very much. I've seen uh, the same thing you're sharing as uh, somehow the concept of who I am, where you shared, keeps keeps as a question until we find our biological parent and it's almost like part of those puzzle just kind of you know follow through and then sometimes when we hear the the story of why I mean obviously a sperm donor is different but if actually somebody had let go voluntarily or involuntarily I think knowing the story of the parent somehow puts a little bit of an ease into mm -hmm. right that search of right. was it me how come i was unwanted um and for some reason when they hear that maybe they were wanted it's just circumstances were in another format i've also mm -hmm. seen a lot of um disappointments where the person kind of created a fantasy of that when i find my uh you know <laughs> and right. uh, would they be and will they be happy to find me and you know maybe found and um, there was no connection and the fantasy of yeah. it was not there and they well, had another level of yeah. yeah in my book I talk about in this third year I found my birth mother when I was uh, 40 years old and I mentioned how I had a friend and early in my search I started searching at least mentally we're talking about the 50s so there's no internet there's no google I was 13 years old so I had to wait to go to college to just have my own mailing uh, mailbox so I could receive uh, receive mail but um uh let's see I think I'm gonna lose my train of thought here so uh yeah so somebody uh along the way said by the way if you when you do find her don't expect to find Elizabeth Taylor and as time when I did find out her name uh, through a, a long complicated process and, and went to with a half sister at that went to a, a, a very dingy apartment back in the east coast in an urban area and um, by then i knew she'd been out of a halfway house for some time she'd been wandering the streets had a major drug and alcohol uh, problems through her, most of her life and so uh, when the door when i when my sister house sister knocked on the door and it opened a crack and she said to me and she knew i was going to be there 
who the hell gave you the right to look me up? I didn't give you my address. So at that time, I knew I was not looking at Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> my birth mother was a charming, beautiful young woman uh, who I did, said didn't look like uh, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, but like the uh, movie star Jean Tierney. She was a gorgeous young young woman. When I met her, uh, you know, it was heavy set wig, big glasses, uh, and so we we although I did recognize we looked a lot alike, more so than her other kids. But that so that the sheen of that romantic you know romanticism of it was was shattered pretty quickly on one hand on the other hand I went in that that afternoon uh and we sat down in a in a pretty dismal apartment and uh she revealed that her books were in storage and i said offhand well how many she said, well, at least 500 and it, a lot, by then i already had my phd from stanford i was surrounded by books in an academic world and a light bulb went off and then she also looked over her shoulder, and I, which I was looking at a poster from the National Gallery, and she said, oh yeah, that's Kandinsky. And that, then she went into a long lecture about Kandinsky's uh, transition, not only in terms of his artwork, but his life transition from Europe, uh, from Russia into, uh, into, I think, France at the time. And gave me this lecture, I thought, this is a woman who has wandered the streets, and here's this brilliant woman uh, being able to recite this kind of stuff. It was mind-boggling. So at some point along, I don't, I don't have time to go into but the book details what that reunion was like. But at that moment, when it wasn't a matter of what you looked like. It was a matter of it was like a Spock mind meld. It was like I could see into her soul. She could see into mine. And th- it was not lost on either of us that we were, you know, from the day I was 10, from the time I was 10 days old till then, that was 40 years. Suddenly that reunion happened. It wasn't just that we, we found each other. We saw saw something of, of each other in, in one another is powerful beyond words. I just, I, you know, uh, it still is. Uh, I've used, I have her picture here by my computer, almost like my muse as I've written this, even though it's long ago. And she died two years after I found her. So yeah, there's, there is the danger of romanticizing, but I think it also depends on what you're looking for. You know, do, are you looking for romantic, uh, 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 romanticized, uh, uh, a narrative that you can adopt or adapt into your own life narrative that makes life a little bit more exciting. I, I have to confess it's probably true for me. And also when we find out who we don't want to, what, what and who we don't want to find. So it pushes the issue as you related to about today compared to when I was doing this, uh, my search with tools like 23andMe, Ancestry.com, genealogical societies and so forth. They can do a lot to tell you stuff that I struggle mightily to find out. That said, they each have a certain limit. There's a certain kind of, there's certain warnings with this uh, in, in search. But also when you do get there, you realize that, you know, am I just the product of my DNA? Am I just another, you know, branch on somebody's family tree? Um, I heard from one of my step, my birth father's uh, daughters, one of my new four half sisters, who was easily, after she read my book, said, well, it's clear you got your brains from your mother because you can get it from our dad. He said you would. On the other hand, he was he was a he was a college athlete, and, and uh, until I got her, I would have been a college athlete myself. So, you have these sort of odd combinations of where environment, heredity, uh, all play in. But I think beyond that, uh, these issues push for those of us who are most curious about what identity really is. I mean, what is identity? And the longer I search, the more I use technical tools, spiritual insight, it became less obvious, not more obvious, 
or less concrete, more mysterious in terms of being able to kind of wrap my hands around the idea of what identity is. The Lost Coin, a memoir of adoption and destiny, Dr. Stephen Rowley. Um, there's also this other angle that I've also experienced, and I don't know if you've uh, you shared that with your adoptive parents. Um, you also say, like, you know, there's a there's a comfortable living, there's a life that the person is going through. They're attached to a mom and a dad, or two dads or two moms, or whomever the you know the parents are, uh, or even a single parent. And somehow this quest shows up for that person and there's a longing uh, that is happening. I've also um, seen that the adoptive, the adoptive parent also goes through this anxiety because Absolutely. they're putting their love, they're putting their everything for this child and they are, you know, they're attaching to this human being as their own. And yet there's always this fear of maybe I'm not gonna be enough. And there's always this kind of romance about, you know, that I'm not, I'm not it. I'm just the substitute. I'm not really the parent. And I don't, I've, I've heard a lot from the parents that they're always on this edge also. When you, as a, I'm speaking to my wife now too, when you love uh, your child, your adopted child, who we regard as our child from the beginning, it's four years old. It still takes you to those limits. You think, I can't, I'm not all those things. I'm not supposed to be all those things. We have limits. We can have unconditional love, but it doesn't mean we're going to subsume this other part of your own background. Whether, whether you would prefer that we did or not, we really can't pretend to be something that we're not. So it, it, it kind of pushes you, takes you to, to that borderline between uh, wh what you are and what you're, what you're not. It's a hard, in, in the case of my own mother, uh, when I was 13 and expressed my curiosity and she just powered up at me and just was outright rebuke and said, what's wrong with you? Don't you think we love you enough? And I ran out of the room and slammed the door and said something foul under my breath and said, vowed, I'm never speaking to you about this again. I never did. I never did. It wasn't until in the book, it's a long story, but I think it's a fairly powerful episode in the book. It wasn't until her hundredth birthday that we had a reconciliation. Now we weren't, I mean, we talked, we had a good relationship, but it was always just that little something. And I wouldn't give in. It was probably to my to my fault that I wouldn't, I knew that she knew that I had found my birth mother. She didn't bring it up and I wouldn't. So it was almost like a grudge, kind of a subtle little thing in there, but not until the end through other, by other means that we uh, saw our relationship quite differently than just a mother son relationship. And, and I can't explain it even today. We have to read the book, but it was basically a moment without words where I think we, we had a different re reckoning of who we were together in this life. It changed. I know it changed for me. And I, it's a, as I say in the book, I think it was the first time I ever saw her cry the whole time uh, we, we, and I grew up. And so it was so, and she died a year after that. So it made her passing actually quite sweet. It was, I, had, I still do have such fond remembrance of her even though, uh, it, but I think it took this last little something to kind of readjust for both of us, kind of uh, reconfigure our, how we saw our own relationship and explain a lot of the things that uh, were unanswered through most of our lives. So, but that that's rare and unusual. Uh, it was actually a result of some um, 
uh, shamanic work I did with a woman in Seattle who was quite powerful. So that's another dimension to the book I'll, I won't get into now. But It's interesting because I was working with uh, uh, someone who um, they adopted a little girl uh, who the parent was uh, you know, suffering from addiction and just wasn't part of the game and the court system had it. And finally, they went through almost like two years of finally, you know, having the child in their home and adopted the child legally and all of that. And uh, around two years after all was settled, that the birth parent, the, the birth mother, um, got healed, recovered, and went back to court to claim her, her child. And it was it was sweet, bitter, sad, exciting, all at the same time. It was like a joyous concept for everyone, and yet such a pain for everyone, and such a because um, the birth mother had the right, you know, she did go through to recovery and had the right to have her child back. And then this the client I had, you know, was waiting for to be adopting someone who could she could raise for all of her life and by the time yeah. she created everything and got attached got thrown away and just yanked and the little girl you know loving both and kind of confused it with all of it the happy ending right. they're all kind of figured it all out and you know, the girl lives with a biological mother, but comes every week and stays two days with the new, you know, kind of like now called more like uh, a godmother, right? So right. it was a happy, happy finally uh, completion and, and a journey, but it was excruciating uh, emotionally. Oh, that's a horrible. I mean, the, the picture you just painted, it just is excruciating. You know, it's a, it's a, a parallel in my mind is a bit like uh, uh, when when uh, divorced adults or adults going through divorce uh, and have to around the custody or parenting agreement and so forth. Usually, the kids' interests are usually a, a, a remote consideration. It's like I'm going to get half of that kid. You're going to get half, and we're going to find what my half is. It's split up every week. Is it summers here, vacations there, school here, weekends there? And really, with not very much consideration of the impact of the child, I think I think I make some assumption that people would think through what I've been have gone through would think I was much more uh, liberal in my uh, uh, attitude toward either arrangements that, that, that apparently were the, the conditions and the woman you just met, um, or or simply open adoptions. And I find myself actually to be much more conservative. I I, I do think by a certain age then then sort of all bets are off then access to records access to knowing even if that other parent wants to get them back probably in terms of that child's life uh, arguably i'm saying arguably because i don't know would have been better served staying with the parents to which she was um which she had uh, uh, who had adopted it and then wait till she's 18 of age and then if the parent is still there, then, then they're fully more, much more mature, be able to accommodate. But when you're little, that's screwy. I mean, that I mean, it's a really, as you know, more better than I do. This particular case, how difficult that is for the child when they have the game. Yes. So I, I have it raises this issue, which I, this is not why we're here today about about the kind of legal uh, agreements that get made uh, a priority to these things to allow something like this to happen. It may not have seemed likely. And good for the mother that got sober and so forth. But um, 
I have to think, does that entitle you to make your own child that much more confused about who they are and, and who, who mom is or where home is? I, as an advocate for the child, I'd say they're better off in one place for a longer time. That's just me. That's, I'm, not, I'm not the involved parent, so. Yes. Dr. Rowley, can you share a little bit about um, the upside what, after all the trauma, after experiencing the abandonment, going through with the, you know, sometimes finding the original parents, sometimes just being in the dark. And you talked about the concept of how it affects our identity. How could someone who has been adopted um, in, in your world, not only from your own experience, but also your right. Um, how could we heal? How could we create the blessings of our life and right. meet with all of this? Right. You know, it's it's easy for some people. I've heard this, and it's I think uh, a simpler reading of, of either my book or whatever could could see adoption as sort of a or I ended up this way because of adoption is sort of a victim story. I think the healing begins when we begin to have a, a much more nuanced and complex life narrative that is going to evolve over the course of one's life. For example, I had a woman I knew a long time ago uh, who was a psychic and said, you know, you need, you're somebody who needed to have two sets of parents. And here are the reasons why. And at the time I thought, for psychic or not, it's like, well, that just really made sense. I really needed to have those four people in some sort of collaborative, you know, proximity to one another to, to actually those elements, which became part of who I am. And so discovering the things that may have seemed to be an obstacle or even a, a negative, uh, uh, how we begin to uh, have time to, to see those obstacles as allies. You know, the things, in other words, for example, even the frustration with the bureaucracy to find out, you know, it took years to find out who my birth, what if I were to find out when I was 20 as opposed to 40 or maybe never. I mean, each of, the, each of those scenarios presents a different sort of learning challenge. And for me anyway, I mean, it's probably who I am and led me into being a psychotherapist, being curious about psyche and, uh, and the unconscious and about our lives, but propelled me to, to look deeper. When I found out um, the identity of my birth father only two years ago through 23andMe, I just started writing just, just the next day. I realized that 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 the whole my whole adoption story was in fact a gift, and so in my particular case, since I had some writing talent of some sort to sit down and actually write a memoir, and I had some background in memoir as well. But this was the this was the return of that gift. Whatever understanding, right or wrong, that I can provide through looking at my life is sort of like this is a way. This is the ultimate gift. I mean, I was given the ultimate gift, and now it's my turn beyond being a a, 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 adopt, a father of an adopted child to give back in some way and to, and I think it's proven generally to be true that the more adoptee, adult adoptees I meet, the more opening up psyche, being able to understand your own unconscious or being able to understand what's still stored down the unconscious. Part of that healing is in therapy as well as what we're talking about here with uh, about this, this discovering our, our roots is in fact its own form of healing, this elevation of consciousness. As we wade through the mysteries, or maybe embrace the mystery of, of our it's a way of elevating consciousness, which I think is the ultimate kind of um, kind of a crowning achievement of what healing ultimately is. Beautiful. Um, and we probably have another minute. Is there anything we haven't shared that you really want people to know? Well, 
if you don't mind, if I can read something at the end. So I use a Zen koan, which is sort of a, a Buddhist uh, tradition in certain uh, uh, lineages. Uh, Zen koan, the most well-known, popular one, is what's the sound of one hand clapping? Because it presents itself as a contradiction. What do you mean one hand? You only make sound with, with two hands. So, uh, but as I, as I came down the stretch of writing the book, uh, I realized I don't know how to end this thing. So I had, having some Buddhist influence in my life, I had this Zen koan, this puzzle, it's used, used by the mind to discover the mind. That's the reason, it's not something to be solved. So when I saw this, it said, uh, while writing this book, a particular Zen koan was present for me. The coin lost in the river is found in the river. It reminded me of the many mysteries of my life. Who am I? To what extent did simple twists of fate shape the contours of my destiny? Over many months, I came to understand uh, firsthand the purpose of a koan is to tease the mind while pushing it beyond the limitations of reason and explanation. I came to accept the teasing of my mind with my haunting questions was akin to opening nested Mariushka dolls one after another, opening one doll or question revealed another one in the waiting. The irony of the Mariushka doll analogy was not lost in me as the traditional Russian dolls represent the mother carrying the family legacy through the child in her womb. The coin lost in the river is found in the river. The meaning of life, if there is one, may be like a coin that is lost in clear river water. But due to the distortion and refraction of light, it may not be where we think it should be. And searching in the murky waters of life, it may be nearly impossible to discern. Sometimes all we can do is fumble blindly in the dark. Like all cons, my story is incomplete and has an uncertain ending. After writing the ups and downs, the joys and challenges of the chapters of my life, I've lost my fondness for certainty. It inhibits curiosity and dampens the capacity to hold the mystery of it all. If there's anything to be found in life, I believe it's in the searching, not the finding. Sometimes I think after all these years, I've found myself. Other times I'm less sure. I do know one thing though, I've always been a lucky boy, but I still don't know why. I'm more content that way, not knowing. What would life be anyway, without its mysteries slipping through our fingers, like coins in a river, lost and found again and again. So that's how I, maybe a good note to end on, not only the end of the book, but I think this, this essence of the search brings us to more mystery than it does to a conclusion. For some people want to have, well, in therapy, want to have hard answers, want to have things concrete and cognitively resolved and so forth. For others, it's sort of like, there's much more subtlety and nuance and mystery that, that keeps, keeps the questions alive. And for me, as the quote in the beginning of the book about, about the, uh, continue to stay with the questions, a quote from Rilke that I think responds to that kind of imp impetus, I think within, at least for people like me, and I think hopefully uh, the book and other clients I'm going to use this with, I think too, will find some solace in that, not disappointment. The Lost Coin, Everyone, A Memoir of Adoption and Destiny by Dr. Stephen Rowley. Dr. Uh, Dr. Rowley, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And for all of you who are out there, create an amazing life for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye. Break free from the forces holding you back. 
Get the life you deserve. Eliminate stress, reduce anxiety, decrease depression, and start living your full potential. Thousands have used Dr. Fujian Zane's Awareness Integration Theory, an evidence-based behavioral health breakthrough with incredible life-changing results. Getting rid of past trauma, having fulfilling relationships, increasing earnings, and living their best life. Now, the Fujian app is available to everyone. The app is Dr. Fujian Zane's Awareness Integration Theory in the palm of your hand. Download the Fujian app today.